Well, for six weeks now, we've been watching those little cars, those little people make their way around that game board, choosing careers and raising families and spending and losing money and experiencing all the familiar ups and downs of this thing called life. And as we've uh, pointed out along the way and at the beginning of the series, this board game that so many of us are familiar with has actually been around for a really long time and has been reinvented several times over. The original version came out over 100 years ago in 1860, um, and it was originally called the checkered game of life. And it was quite a bit darker in the way it played out than the modern version. There were spaces like prison, poverty, ruin, and disgrace. Well, the modern version came out uh, 100 years later in the 1960s and was considerably brighter in the way that it played. Though if things didn't go well, you still could end up in the poor farm. The 21st century version of the game is brighter still, and everyone's up, everyone ends up in a happy place, either millionaire estates or countryside acres, one of the two. But what I just noticed this week as I looked at the game one more time is that there's something else missing from the modern 21st century version of the game. One particular space on the board that's absolutely critical to the outcome of the game. It's called the Day of Reckoning. There's no Day of Reckoning in the modern version of the game. The, in, the modern, in the original version, people had to stop, every player had to stop on that Day of Reckoning and pay their debts and find out where they were going to land at the end of the game. I don't know when that space went away, but somewhere along the way, toy makers decided that contemporary people weren't too interested in a day of reckoning. Will there be such a day? A day when we're held accountable for the lives we've lived and the decisions that we've made. A day when we find out where we're going to spend the rest of our days. And if there is such a day, are you ready for it? We've been talking about life after death for a few weeks now, recognizing that every human being seems to have this sense that we were made for more than just this life, the brief sojourn we have on this planet called Earth. We have a sense that we were made for more than millionaire acres or countryside estates. But what happens to us after we die? Where do we go? What will it be like? What do we do for all of eternity? These are the questions we've been asking, and each week we've been turning to Scripture and to the words of Jesus for some answers. So two weeks ago, we learned that life really doesn't end at death. Death is a comma, we said, not a period. It's a passage from this life to the next. Our soul goes on ahead of us, and then someday at the end of the age, body and souls are reunited, renewed, resurrected like Jesus. Then last week, we talked about what happens to us right after we die. And we learned that even though our body is left behind, our soul goes immediately to one of two places. A good place, which we typically call heaven, Jesus called it paradise, or a not good place, which the Bible typically calls Hades or the grave. But we pointed out that neither one of these are eternal destinations. They're temporary landing places, intermediate places awaiting the resurrection at the end of the age. So today, we'd like to talk about what happens at, in the age to come, in that moment when Christ returns, brings human history to an end, 
and we all enter together into the eternal state, the age to come. What will we do for all eternity? What will it be like? And how can we know where we're going to spend it? Those are the questions we're going after today. So once again, we're going to turn to the words of Jesus. We're not going to hear them directly this time because we're not going to be in the Gospels. We're going to be hearing the words of Jesus spoken or revealed to his disciple John in one of the most mysterious and fascinating books of the Bible, the book of Revelation. At the end of his life, the apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos. And while he was there, he received a series of visions in which the Lord spoke to him about things to come, things in his own time period and things in the distant future. So we're going to go to that book. Now, if you're one of those people who likes to read the end of the book before you start the book, you're going to love this because we're jumping right to the end. But if you're one of those people who likes to be surprised, don't worry. There's still going to be plenty of surprises, I think, at what we find here in Revelation 21 and 22. So let's read some sections of these two chapters together. I'm going to condense it a little bit and rearrange the verses just a little bit so we read them thematically. Let's just walk through and make some observations about, um, about what eternity might like. Because the game of life does get one thing right. There are two destinations we can end up in in the life to come. So let's read back and forth. I'll read uh, the regular print and you can read uh, the bold yellow print. Beginning of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So here's the first surprise. The story doesn't end with us going to heaven. The story ends with heaven coming to us. And for many of us, that's exactly the opposite of how we have imagined the life to come. We've always thought we'll kind of leave this place behind and go to a new and better place. When I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, we used to sing a song. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's golden shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. We love that song. And so many of us have this idea that we're going to someday leave behind this broken, fallen, ruined world and go to a new and better place. But that's not the plan. God's plan is to redeem and restore this fallen world, to, to put it right, as one scholar likes to say. 
God's plan from the beginning was that heaven and earth would be one, that they would exist in harmony, that we, his creatures, would relate freely with him, our creator, that, that life would flow freely back and forth, that this world would become all that he intended it to be, that, that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That was his plan from the beginning. But when we declared our independence from God, when we broke faith with him in the garden, that's when death and mourning and crying and pain found its way into the garden. A curse fell on this world. And it affected every aspect of human experience, from our human behavior to the way nature itself plays out. And even with all our advancements in medicine and technology and education and science and diplomacy, our news feed reminds us every morning that this world is still broken, that human beings are still fallen, and that things aren't working the way they're supposed to work, the way we and God want them to work. But ever since that fall happened, God has been working to bring heaven and earth back together. He speaks to us through nature and in the human conscience. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures. And he, he came to be with us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And little by little, person by person, day by day, his kingdom is beginning to grow, to expand, to increase. And someday, the Bible tells us, he will bring that work to completion. He will return and bring human history as we know it to a close and usher a new day and put things right. No more mourning, no more dying, no more crying, no more pain. The curse will be reversed. And you have no idea how hard it is for a Yankee fan to even say those words. <laughs> Although it's less hard with the Yankees beating up on the Sox right now, but that's another story. Someday, what's wrong will be put right. What's broken will be made whole. Those who suffer will be relieved. Those who have been treated unjustly will be vindicated. No more picking up our news feed to read of yet another disaster, another shooting, another death, another loss, another betrayal. Notice there's, there's a garden at the center of this city. And in the center of that garden, a tree of life, bearing fruit in every season, free for the taking. We've come full circle. The earth will be restored to its original splendor, not so it can stay that way, so that it can become ultimately what God intended from the very beginning, that it would increase and expand and resound to the glory of God forever and ever. When the Bible uses this word new, new is a, is a nice word in any language. We all love new things. But the biblical word for new is even richer. It's not just an improved thing. It's not just an upgraded thing like iPhone 7 to iPhone 8 or iPhone X. It's like a whole new thing. It's like a completely superior thing. 
It's like the difference between iPhone, iPhone X and the old rotary phone. I mean, these are two completely different experiences of way of communicating with each other, one far superior than the other. So friends, this is good news. This is our hope. Not that we leave this fallen world behind, but that God returns to restore this planet, to restore us to relationship with himself, and to once again bring into play the plan he had from the very beginning. It will be nothing short of a new creation. But if everything's going to be put right, something has to be done with what's wrong. So it doesn't come slithering back into that garden and ruin things once again. So let's keep reading and understand what's going to happen. We'll pick it up at verse 6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Pretty tough stuff, right? It's hard even to have to read those words out loud. So what's going on here? I mean, why is this even necessary? Well, we learned last week, God will not force anyone to live with him if they'd rather not. And so there has to be a place for them to go where God is not. And that's what's being described here. The Bible sometimes calls that place hell. And often there's fiery imagery associated with it as here. But let's remember, this, this is a metaphor. Uh, the, the, the scripture is trying to help us understand something unfamiliar in things that we, words that we are familiar with, to understand things that are beyond our comprehension. It's a word picture. We're not supposed to take it literally. When we're told that uh, when Jesus talks about drinking from the spring of the water of life, we don't imagine we're going to spend all eternity drinking from a heavenly water fountain. So, so why should we imagine there's a literal lake of fire that people get tossed into? Friends, these are just metaphors. They're just trying to communicate a big idea here. And the big idea is that, is that water is a symbol of life and refreshment. And fire is a symbol of death and destruction. That's pretty much about all we know about this place called hell. It's the absence of life. It's the absence of goodness and beauty and truth and love. It's the absence of God. And so look what kinds of things happen there. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... These ways of living, these are the exact, exact opposite of the ways, way God's designed us to live and treat each other. These ways of living, they lead to heartache and destruction and death and exploitation. This is not what God wants for human beings. 
But understand, when, when, when we get a list of people like this, Jesus isn't talking about people who do these things because the truth is we all do these things, don't we? At least some of them. Is there anyone among us who hasn't been cowardly at some point, who hasn't had a sexually immoral thought, who hasn't told a lie somewhere along the way? He's not talking about people who do these things. He's talking about people who choose these things, who embrace this way of living who, when all is said and done, choose death instead of life, choose their way instead of God's way. So understand, heaven and hell, it's not about good people and bad people. Because the truth is we're all good people sometimes, and we're all bad people sometimes. Heaven and hell is about God's people and not God's people. And if you don't want to be one of God's people, you don't have to be in this life or in the life to come. So there will be a day of reckoning, it turns out, when we will be held accountable for the decisions that we've made, for the life that we've chosen, a life with God or a life without God. Now, fortunately, happily, the Bible has a whole lot more to say about those who choose life with God. So why don't we get back to that for a few minutes? What will this new heaven and earth, this new creation be like? Let's walk through John's description. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Now remember again, this is symbolic language. So the new creation is not literally a city, but it's like a city. It's a place where people live and work and play and laugh and learn and love and visit and explore. And the first thing we learn about this city, this new creation, is that it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's as beautiful as a diamond glistening in the sunlight. It's as beautiful as a Waterford crystal vase. It's as beautiful as a pearl necklace. It's as beautiful as a 24-carat gold ring. It's as beautiful as Chihuly glass sculpted into some magnificent shape. As beautiful as this earth can be at times, in the life to come, it will be more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. Let's keep reading. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and walls. So the second thing we learn about this new creation is that it's going to be big. 12,000 stadiums, about 1,400 miles. It's roughly the distance from Boston to Miami. So imagine a cube, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. Earth's atmosphere ends at about 300 miles. This is an enormous cube we're asked to imagine. But remember, it's just a metaphor. We're not supposed to picture some big glass cube in the sky like some old-fashioned phone booth crammed with people. 
The point is, it's big. For, for, for ancient people, most of whom would never travel even 100 miles from the place they were born, a city of this size was beyond their wildest imagination. And that's the point. There will be all kinds of places to explore in this new creation. There will be room for lots and lots of people in this city. Let's keep going. I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. So two things to notice here. The first is that this uh, new city will be busy. I mean, look at all the activity happening here. This is a place of commerce and creativity, people coming and going, nations showing off their stuff. It looks like we won't all be the same ethnicity or color in the new creation, thank goodness. Instead, we will celebrate our differences and, and together resound to the glory of God. We're not going to be sitting around in the new creation. We're told that we'll be serving in the new creation. Now, that doesn't have to mean singing in the choir. If you like choir, that's great. But it's, it's all the ways we serve God. It's putting our talents and our skills and our passions to work in ways that advance God's kingdom and, and radiate his glory. We'll do those things forever and ever. In fact, we won't just be serving. We'll be ruling We'll be exercising dominion. Does that sound familiar? That's what we're supposed to have been doing all along. And that leads to the final observation about the new creation. It will be bright with the presence of God. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Now, once again, we're talking metaphor here. Light in the Bible is always a symbol of life, a particular kind of life, God's kind of life. You remember in the beginning, the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth, of, of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And soon after, there was life. The image comes back again when Jesus comes to visit us. God incarnate shows up on our planet. And on that night, the, the, the angels appear to shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And when Jesus rises from the grave on the third day, it's at dawn, at sunrise. Light in the scripture is about life. It's about the life of God. How happy have we been to see the sun the past week or so? After all those weeks of clouds and gray and rain and cold, the sun just makes everything better. How happy will we be to see the S-O-N to enjoy the radiance of his beauty and goodness forever and ever. Now, I got one little concern here about this sunshine thing. I kind of like snow, so I'm not sure how that all goes together, but I'm figuring maybe it's like skiing in the Rockies. Blue sky, fresh powder, no jacket, no lift lines, that kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> Beautiful, big, busy, bright. There's one B word that's not going to have anything to do with the new creation, and that's boring. We will not be bored for all eternity. It's not an eternal church service, okay? So relax <laughs> about that. 
there will be plenty to do. There will be worlds to explore. There will be people to enjoy. There will be a king to serve. So there's still a lot we don't know about this new creation, a lot we can't know because our minds just can't comprehend it. But this much we know, the life to come will be bigger, better, and brighter than we can possibly imagine. Whatever you're hoping the life to come will be like, it's going to be way better than that. There's just one catch. Apparently, not everybody will be there. We have to add one more B word to the list. This holy city will be bounded. There are walls around this city. Verse 27 tells us, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So apparently there, there will be people outside the city. Now we're not sure exactly what that means and how it relates to the lake of fire image and all that. It is interesting that when Jesus talks about hell, he uses the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a place outside the city. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And many of us have been told, and I have even preached, that Gehenna was a place where the garbage was burned. And maybe that was true, but nobody has ever really been able to substantiate that. What the valley of Gehenna was really about is that was where people went to worship false gods. And that was where they went to sacrifice their children. The, the fires of Gehenna were fires of sacrifice burned to false gods. Gods who persuaded human beings to do the worst possible things to each other. The Valley of Gehenna was a place you went to if you wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. And that's what this place is going to be like. Jesus is simply telling us that whatever this place is like, it's a place where God is not. Where those who choose to worship themselves or something worse can do so. And they can do it forever and ever. So I'm afraid we need to add a sobering phrase to our big idea. Two little words. The life to come will be bigger, better, and brighter than we can possibly imagine or not. It will not be for those who will not choose it. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth. But we can begin to understand the reasoning behind it. This beautiful city is not going to be beautiful for very long if we let this kind of behavior into it. Besides, if people don't really want to live with God in this life, why would he make them live with him forever in the life to come? But it still seems like an awful fate. Is there any hope at all for those who land in this place? Well, people have pondered that for a long time. People of faith have pondered that. So let me offer you a few of the ways that people have tried to think about this, and then we'll try to wrap things up on a happier note, okay? The first idea is the idea called universalism. This is the idea that ultimately everybody makes it to the new heaven and the new earth, either because they are so good or because God is so good. 
Now, while there are some things that are appealing about that thought, there's not very much, if any, biblical evidence to point us in that direction. And it still raises some questions. What about justice? Are there no consequences for wickedness? And and what about freedom? Are human beings really not free to choose life without God? Another view I'll call second chancism. This is the idea that we might have another opportunity, other side of the grave to choose life, to choose God. There's not a lot of biblical evidence to support that, but uh, there are a couple, perhaps, hints of that. Some will point out that the gates of this city, we're told, are never shut. Does that mean people who are outside the city can find their way into the city if they want? C.S. Lewis famously said that the gates of hell are locked on the inside, that people are free to leave if they want. Unfortunately, as he imagines it, they never do. They choose to remain apart from God. A third view can be described as conditional immortality. This is the idea that people who go to hell simply cease to exist. There are a few scriptural ideas that might point in that direction. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden before they can eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, that could sound like a punishment, but it could sound like a mercy. Because if, as sinful people, they ate from the tree of life that would live forever, now they're going to live forever as sinful, corrupted human beings. And so for their own protection and this world's protection, they were kicked out. And so perhaps immortality is not inherently a human right. It's a gift that's bestowed on those who come to God through faith in Christ. And besides, if hell is a place of death and destruction, then isn't that what happens to people who go there? It's the nature of fire to consume things. So is the second death eternal dying, or is it just eternal death? This view is sometimes known as annihilationism. That sounds a little bit more like God is punishing people than simply allowing them the consequences of their decisions. The conservative theologian John Stott was intrigued by this particular idea. And the final view, and the one most commonly held, I'll simply call eternal torment. This is the view that hell is a place of everlasting suffering. Now, last week we pointed out there's a difference between torture and torment. Torture is pain inflicted on a person by someone else. Torment is something that typically is brought on oneself and involves emotional anguish. Either way, it doesn't sound like a... It sounds awful. Now, this has been the traditional view for many, many centuries. But I think it's important to know that the view is based, fueled as much by human imagination as it is by actual scriptural references. The difficulty with such an idea is why is such suffering necessary and how do we reconcile it with the character of God? And yet there are verses that seem to point in that direction. So all this to say, those are some of the options available to us as we try to process this difficult concept. None of these views are completely satisfying and each of them come with particular difficulties. We'll each have to come to our own conclusion based on our own study of Scripture and our understanding of the character and work of God. But here's what I want to suggest. Whatever conclusion you come to, hold it loosely. Let's refrain from making pronouncements about what hell is like and who goes there because the truth is we don't know. That's not our decision to make. That's God's, and we can trust him to make it. 
as merciful and just as we think we might be, he is far more merciful and just than we will ever be, and we can trust him. And besides, as someone has pointed out, heaven, after all, will be full of surprises. And I like to think that some of those surprises will be beyond our wildest hopes. But let's finish this message and this series with something that we can know for certain. Something we can be absolutely certain about when we think about the life to come. John himself tells, says it to us. He says it in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 5. Let's read it together because these may be some of the most important words you could ever read or believe. 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Does not have the Son does not have life. Write these things to you who believe name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So it turns out we don't have to wonder what's going to happen to us when we die. We don't have to worry where we're going, if we've done enough good deeds, if we've jumped through the right hoops, if we're going to get a second chance at it later. We can actually know for certain that we have eternal life. All we have to do is choose it now by believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again for us, by inviting him to come live with us so that we discover life with God now and can enjoy it forever. If you have never done that, you can do that at any moment. You can do that today. You can do that in just a moment when we receive communion together. Taking the bread and cup is a way of saying, yes, Lord, I receive this gift of forgiveness and life through faith in Christ. If you have done that already, then thank him for it and don't waste another day living a life that's anything less than big and beautiful and busy and bright because eternal life isn't just longer life and better life. It's life beyond our wildest hopes and it can begin now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us about some of the most mysterious and perhaps unsettling questions that human beings can possibly ask. Thank you that we are not left without any witness, without any direction. Thank you that you have told us just enough to know what we can look forward to, what we can turn away from. Thank you for making it as simple as turning to you in faith and repentance, receiving the love and the life of Jesus. So Lord, for the many who have received that life already, may you encourage us with the truths that we've talked about today. May we live with confidence in this life and in the life to come. And may we not keep this news to ourselves, but might we share it freely. For those who are still contemplating this opportunity, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would lead them to a place where they too are ready to say yes to the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the communion table and the opportunity we have now to spend a few more minutes with you and with each other reflecting on these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.